0: Welcome to
1: Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic.
0: Greetings, fellow guest-splainers and God-splainers. We are here. My name is Father Bonaventure Chapman. I'm joined by Father Gregory Pine. But most importantly, since this is guest-splaining, I'm joined by a very special guest, um, Professor Anthony Esselin, who is, and I'm just going to read a little bit of the bio here, although hopefully he's known to you already, professor and writer-in-residence at Maudlin or Magdalen College in liberal arts in Warner, New Hampshire. Um, lecturer, translator, writer, poet, so we'll focus on today, but a writer in many magazines and journals. Uh, I know him from Chronicles Magazine, which is one of my favorites, and read him often there. But also on blogs, the Catholic Thing, Crisis Magazine editor, um, writer of many nonfiction books. Out of the Ashes: Rebuilding American Culture. Ten Ways to Ruin Your Children's Imagination. Also, the re- most recent, I think, is uh, Sex in the Un Sex in the Unreal City in two thousand twenty-one by Ignatius. Uh, The book that we're going to at least talk about, we'll talk about many of these books, is a recent one as well, 2019, The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord. This is by Professor Esselin, who also you may know him from translations of the classic words of Lucretius. Uh, his poetry on the uh, nature of things, but also probably, likely, Dante's Divine Comedy for the Modern Living Library. There's plenty to go on there. I would say, if you don't know Professor Anthony Esselin at this point in your career (laughs) in life, uh, someone has made a mistake. It might be you, it might be someone else, it won't be him, Um, but we are delighted and guest-playing to welcome uh, Professor Anthony Esselin. Professor Esselin, how are you?
1: Thank you. I'm I'm doing real well. Thanks.
0: I would say That's a great
1: introduction. Thank you.
0: Well, there's so much to say. I mean, I should mention the first book I think I've read of yours. Um, and by the way, if I mean, listen to the episode got on guest on God's, God's Point, of course. But after the go immediately buy his books, um, the politically incorrect guide to Western civilization. That was I think the first book I ever read of yours, and it just it just was phenomenal. There's something winsome about like an American Chesterton, but with more skill. That's a dig for uh, to uh, Father Gregor, who <laughs> loves oh, Chesterton. Dear me.
1: Uh, yeah. me. I didn't um, say that, folks. Uh, I did not say that.
0: But uh, Professor Esalen, uh, for those who are listening, is, of course, I, I think, what, what should we say? One of the greatest American defenders of Catholic imag- the Catholic imagination today. You write a lot on the importance of the imagination, of the arts, of, of beauty, of these things that we can take for granted in modern culture, whether it be architecture, whether it be music. I mean, if you just go over the books again, the list that covers all. So I think you're maybe the, yeah, the greatest current American defender of the Catholic imagination. Is that a good description of you put on a, a note card?
1: Oh gosh, I hope, uh, I, I hope I'm a defender of the, first of all, I hope I'm the, a defender of the human imagination, generally speaking, Okay. whether I'm the greatest defender of the Catholic imagination, I leave, I'm going to leave that to somebody, but, uh, uh, you, you know, the book that everybody ought to read once a year or once every other year, if you're a teacher or if you're a parent, is C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. um, which is a book about uh, education, specifically about ed- educating the imagination, the taste, Okay, making proper aesthetic judgments. This is beautiful. This is not beautiful. This is sublime. This is merely pretty. OK, and uh, if if you've got teachers, of course, they're everywhere now. Right. I mean, this is the default position is any judgment about beauty is strictly subjective and meaningless. That's the default position. That's universal now. And basically it's destructive. C.S. Lewis says it it will rot the imagination right out. It'll turn you into a a kind of subhuman creature. Human beings are made to respond in appropriate ways to beauty. and I think we can see how bad things are if you just ask yourself a simple question. You come to a new city, okay? You come to a town where you've never been before. Tell me that your eye is not going to be attracted by the oldest buildings in that town. And if that's the case, something very odd is going on, because it wouldn't have been the case in Renaissance Italy, right? We we don't build anything that's beautiful anymore. Um, we don't teach our children to love beautiful art or even to uh, to read a poem okay that's all frilly stuff uh i'm sorry but this is central to what it means to be a human person to to uh to desire what is beautiful
0: yeah, I, I think I was gonna say the first time the first time we'd actually met, I was a chauffeur of yours to uh to a Thomistic Institute talk at the House of Studies, and I picked you up from the airport, and we were driving back, and we'd pulled into Washington D.C. right under three ninety five, pointed to the city, and you just had this sigh, and you went head back in there and said, ah, what kind of civilization produces buildings of glass and steel like this? And I. You know, I, I didn't know what to do at that point, but I just kept making a left turn, but it was right. It was just it was profound wisdom. So, um, right. So beauty, we don't, yeah, beauty is as a subjective thing. And one of our things in God's planning at least is to, is to emphasize the objectivity of the arts, of, of, yeah. of painting, of music of literature that the worst thing in the world is when someone says, um, you know, I don't read fiction. I only read nonfiction because I want to read things that are true. That blows my mind, absolutely blows my mind. Um, the, so, But today, particularly in what we want to talk to Professor Esselin about, because he's a master at this, it seems, and has now applied his own trade at this, is poetry because poetry for many of you listening i suspect for me at least is the thing it's like a haiku or a limerick that you did when you were in grade school or something that we taught you did in the school you made a little silly poem or something it might have rhymed it might not have rhymed um and then at some point you got into poetry well you you found out that poetry was this kind of weird thing that didn't make it was really complicated and had no rhythm and sort of thing to it so you you're so you just either gave it up, or you stuck with little silly kind of haiku. Well, haikus can be profound. Yeah. Too. So e-
1: either it's e- either it's silly and childish, or it's uh, verbal sludge. That's
0: right. Uh, and, and and Professor Estlund, so you're here to tell us and to remind people that there's a via media. In fact, there's like an alphabet you know, even you could say if we get right, a yelling it, on
1: this. The, the verbal sludge. Let's just put it right out there. Okay. The worst thing that happened to European poetry in the late 19th century was a move towards free verse, okay? That they decoupled poetry from music, okay? Uh, it was a bad thing that happened to we, There are some brilliant poems in free verse. That's verse without meter, okay? Um, but uh, uh, just as there's brilliant atonal music, you don't wanna listen to it a lot, okay? because we like music that actually has form, um, a recognizable form. And uh, so all the techniques that had been passed down uh, in the various European languages over hundreds of years have been lost, all right? Uh, So if somebody is out there saying, you know what, I I don't really care for this uh, stuff that gets called poetry. I don't sense any form to it. The words seem to be strained. I don't know what the heck is, president even talking about. Uh, I'm not talking about that kind of phenomenon. We we can just leave that to the side, okay? Just say that that's sludge. Um, Poetry, properly speaking, is the universal human art, right? Wherever you go, wherever you go in human cultures, go to the Eskimos, right? They don't have marble up there uh, in in northern Canada to do sculptures with, right? Um, They don't have canvas to paint on. But they have voices and memory and all you need is you need language and voice and memory and you you can have poetry and all human cultures have had it and it's been central in all human cultures until ours okay mm-hmm. um think think folk music folk the the the, the 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 hymns that people sing uh across all human civilizations when they sing their uh songs of praise to god or to the gods this is poetry um or when they sing love songs or when they remember heroes of old this is universal among human beings and they sing these things they have form okay and ordinary people love them okay uh this is not for a a couple of people over there i mean uh for your uh, select few eskimos okay Uh, Only those select few Eskimos in that one particular village have any songs whatsoever about their ancestors and their brave deeds. That's crazy. Everybody shares in it, okay? Until our time. But we're the odd ones, okay? We're the bizarre ones. And we're also bizarre. I think the two things are related. We're bizarre in that we spend a great deal of money, a great deal of our resources, building things that are hideous. Yep. and it doesn't matter to us that too that's 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 a new thing in the history of the world when people had resources they built things that were imposing or beautiful or both but not just you know kind of ugly but functional and we don't really care people didn't do that I've, um, I've
0: yeah i feel like i yeah, I feel like we need to have you talk about architecture as well um but this on the poetry sticking the poetry so um what what have what have we lost then? Like what for so the individual? What do you, I mean? What what have we lost by not having poetry? So as a civilization, we've lost things certainly. What about the what about the individual uh, human being or the or the family or what what is what? Since we've now since we don't do poetry or we don't have this as a cultural form, uh, what are we missing?
1: Uh, well, quite a great deal. It let's suppose that you're a farmer in Prince Edward Island in 1820. Okay. And you might say to me, well, Dr. Esalen, I didn't have any poetry. Of course they did, because they went to church and they sang hymns and they had by heart, okay, hundreds of hymns. They couldn't afford hymnals. They had them by heart, right? And then when they could afford hymnals, sometimes they couldn't even afford the music, so they had the melodies by heart. Um, and, and, and they formed their imaginations. They were important. To them, they they spoke in a full and powerful way, in a very concentrated way, about all kinds of things. What it means to be human. I mean, is are, are there any words more moving than, uh, say, the, the the words of that poem that we know as the hymn, "Abide with Me"? Abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. Um. You, you know, it's it's taking the the story of the two men walking on the road to Emmaus and it grows towards evening and they say Lord it's getting late here would you abide with us would you stay with us and it's applied to the individual as he gets older and as he meets his death well this is just a few stanzas of poetry anybody could have that work of art as their own all their lives you don't have to go to the museum to see it it could be with you okay I was, I was, we're talking about great, great masterpieces of human art that ordinary people can understand, that can be theirs as fully as it can be anybody's. Rich or poor, it doesn't matter. Okay, And in old days, it didn't even matter if you were able to read because people had them by heart from hearing. Um, and and it's, it is dynamite. Okay, I'm not using that, I'm using that word deliberately. Um, Here we are faced with a really rotten cultural situation, okay, and there's a lot of undoing of bad things to be done and a lot of building of good things to be done. And let's suppose you want to put a road through a mountain. What are you gonna use? Picks and shovels? How about using the TNT and the nitro? Well, that's your poetry for you. A lot of power concentrated in a very small package. A lot of power. You, you memorize, you put a poem to heart, a short poem to heart be yours for the rest of your life. Um, and we don't use it. I mean, we, we think that our kids are going to grow up with their heads straight if we focus on political philosophy and theology. Sorry, it's not gonna happen. The imagination is the driver. You neglect that, the imagination, Satan will gladly conceive you, all that other stuff. If he can get hold of the imagination, if he gets hold of the imagination, he's he's got the steering wheel and he's got the gas pedal, and he and that car is going where he's driving.
0: Yeah, I love that, and that's why the, the, I like how you put the human definitive of the human imagination um, because it it is imagination that we have in terms of beauty is a human attribute, and poetry hits it right at the center, as with all the arts do. But it it is something that. We've totally lost, but we used to, memorize in school, we used to have people do this. People used to, I mean, you know, soliloquies of Hamlet, for instance, I remember having to do that. I don't know if they still do that. Do you, uh, before we take a quick break, do you have any sense of, in a very short, why we gave, is it just, I mean, is there, I mean, have you thought about like why we've get, why do people give up on beautiful things like this?
1: Uh, Terrible education system for a long time. But, uh, some, the academe bears a great deal of blame too. Um, the various arts got, uh, commandeered by the academy and the academy laid the cold, dead hand of academic theory upon the arts and divorced them from worship, from common life and so on. And I mean, you, they ended up academically producing music no one wants to listen to. And, uh, just, you know, apply that. The same thing applies in architecture and, uh, painting and sculpture and in poetry. Um, poetry became uh, itself ugly, uh, and unmemorable. And frankly, people just, people lost interest. People lost the habit. And now you've got a whole genera, we've got at least two or three generations of teachers of English literature in our schools who don't know anything about poetry. They don't. They don't know anything about it. Most of my students at a college that shall remain nameless, when I would get them as a freshman, I'd get them in a a seminar. So it'd be about 20 kids in one room. And I'd say, okay, I'm gonna give you the name of an English writer. You don't have to tell me if you've read the work. You don't have to tell me anything about the guy. Just tell me if you recognize the name. And I say, John Milton. And maybe two or three in a class of 20 recognize the name. I say Alfred Tennyson, nobody recognizes the name. Zero out of 20. Um, yeah. Well, like the,
0: in a place near your neck of the woods, I suppose, that's that said Concord, that Miniman bridge, you know, where it does on, on the Concord and the battle road where all of a sudden the Minuteman turned the British soldiers and marched them back. Maybe this is the moment here on Gus um, we're going to turn this all around. Uh, Professor Esselin <laughs> no, no, no. is going to be our, our minute man, who's going to say, "You know, these academic people that we thought were our friends are actually British soldiers invading, and so we're going to march them all the way to Boston and push them out of the sea." But we're going to take hey. a break before we do that. Exactly, and now you uh, know after- that
1: every schoolboy used to know Emerson's little poem about uh, about Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill, the shot and fired the shot heard round the world. I mean, most people every know, yeah. Now.
0: Now they may be, they, now they don't even know that it happened, let alone the poetry about <laughs> it. But I, maybe those two are related, right? You probably said, okay, but we're going to take a quick break on guest planning. We're going to come back and talk to Professor Esselen, and we're going to get him to do some poetry because he's not only a student of it and a scholar of poetry, but we have here a living po- poet himself. Um, so we'll hear some of the poetry and talk about what it is and how we start to recover this human and Catholic imagination. So stick with us in guest planning for just a moment.
1: You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes,
0: shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. And we're back with Professor Anthony Esselin. Um, hopefully, you've given enough time for the break and you've gotten a cup of coffee and you've been thinking, I need to put on a beret and read some poetry. Um, maybe try to write some poetry, but that's probably gonna be a disaster because you have to be good at this. Although, maybe the shaking hands, but Professor Esalen is is good at writing poetry. And in The Hundredfold, the first 46 pages, if I remember correctly, are a document or a study what poetry is. It's a discussion about what poetry is. And then the rest of the book is a gorgeous collection of poems written by a living, breathing human being, not someone who is dead, but a modern American writing beautiful poetry. So, Professor Esselstyn, I'll hand it over to you here to talk about, um, give us some examples. One, why you started to write poetry, you know, you've you've translated poetry, you've thought about poetry and all this, but the experience of writing poetry, um, and then some maybe some examples of your poetry and how we're supposed to hear it, and then if you want to give some tips on like, I mean, I'm just, I'm terrified of you telling people to write poetry because it's going to, Oh, I'm like terrified can... also.
1: Um, okay, but go ahead, please. Somebody to play the violin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no way to, to almost play the violin. Well, you know, uh, Yeah. Uh, it's one thing to hear somebody play the violin. It's another thing to actually take the bow out in the cat cut. Um, so uh, I, I, I wrote poetry when I was um, well when I was younger. I gave it up uh, doing translations for quite a long time. Um, so I'm I'm actually returning to something that I had done before. Uh, and uh, the Hundredfold is uh, it's not a collection of poems so much as a single poem made up of a hundred poems, twelve of which are like the pillars of the whole work. They are. Uh, dramatic monologues or dialogues, okay? They're in iambic pentameter, unrhymed. Uh, that's the that's the meter that is classic in English literature. That's what Shakespeare most often uses. That's the meter for Milton's Paradise Lost and so on and so on. Um, and uh, each of these monologues or dialogues, uh, they, they are uh, spoken by, or some in two cases, they are letters written by some person alive during the time of christ or shortly shortly thereafter uh, the whole work is organized around the life of christ okay and uh, with a dramatic monologue um, which is one of the most popular forms of poetry for about a hundred years in english it's almost gone now it's vanished um, what you have is a speaker or speakers in a dramatic situation um, And you usually hear only one side of the conversation there. You have to use your imagination to guess what else might might be going on around them. Um, Sometimes they tell a story, uh, but they're, you know, i give you an example of this, right? So I asked myself for the first month, like I said, what would it be like to be Mary? As a, you know, now an older woman, uh, her son Jesus is a grown man. Um, he hasn't begun his ministry yet, but she's kind of worried that it's coming soon. Joseph has died. Um, Jesus, it's the early morning and Jesus is asleep. Okay. She's awake and she's looking at him and thinking about him and remembering past and is apprehensive about the future because she especially remembers the prophecy of Simeon, a sword will pierce your heart. Um, so what would she say in that situation, right? Um, and there you have the beginning of a dramatic monologue. So with this one that I'm I'm going to read um, I'm going to read from. So I'm going to read like the last half of it. Uh, I imagine that that boy who had the um, couple of fish and the five loaves of bread, right? Um, the boy who brought lunch. Kind of a big lunch, too. Um, what happened to that? First of all, what was he doing there to begin with? Because he was obviously not with his uh, parents, who would have had the food otherwise. What was he doing there? And second, what would it be like to be him 20 years later, 50 years later, Okay, thinking about that? So uh, I imagine in this, uh, in this monologue, the boy who brought some food, I imagine him as now an older man, and he's got a couple of grandsons, okay? Got a couple of Mr. his Grandsons, and he is right now telling them this story, okay? Um, so we're kind of in the middle of it, and he's speaking to the, uh, to the grandsons. You see that stone bench over by the wall? He sat there. While his brothers buzzed about, so busy trying to push the people back, nobody thought to draw him a cool drink. His feet were thick with calluses and dust, and on one heel, a brown streak of dried blood. He leaned, hands on his knees, and shut his eyes. But men were crying, Rabbi, throne of David, the scribes say, is it lawful? Show us signs. Are you that son of David, Rabbi, Rabbi? Like. Crow chicks almost too big for the nest, craning their necks to gobble down a mouse. They wanted to look wise, but they were longing, and still he shut his eyes. Then mothers came, lugging their youngsters to him to be blessed. Two of my brothers in their dirty smocks tugged at my shirt, as always, while the third, the littlest toddler, had no clothes at all, but waddled up to him as bold as Adam, that was your uncle joel who baptized all the way to the well springs of the nile where men are burnt black by the noonday sun but when they came out they were white like snow and he slew seven lions along the way i'll tell you sometime. the disciples grumbled ladies you see the master needs his rest give him some room to breathe gentlemen please have done with your disputing for a while the master has nowhere to lay his head They loved him, truly, such a sinner's love, and loved their bustle in doing good for him out of their gratitude and pride of place. You understand me, boys? Beware of pride. Pride is a precipice behind your back. While you're dazed by the admiring crowds and try to get a better look at them, looking at you, where was I now? I, the children. At their sound, he raised his head. He looked upon him and held out his arms, said, let the little children come to me mussing their hair blessing them with a kiss and for a moment seeming to forget there was a world beyond i tell you truly he said out of the tabernacle of the small ones all around him with a sigh unless a man becomes as one of these he shall not enter into heaven's kingdom simple and plain it was as if he were describing the dimensions of a door and one too small for me to wriggle through. Then I felt clumsy, all big feet, big head, out among big and stupid things, like giants. It wrung my heart to tears, boys, when I saw such distances in him, only in him. And I said, like a boy who finds a king, whatever happens to him, I will follow. I'll swear my life away. What did I care for Pharisees and fine points of the law? In him were wisdom and magnificence and a king's gentle touch and cooling springs. That summer I forgot I had a home. I gleaned the barley in a rich man's fields to earn some copper while I lived on air. I curried horses for a Roman soldier kind to the Jewish people. Mended fishnets in Chorazim upon the sea rolled carts of rubble from the imperial building works at Caesarea, always with an eye to follow him wherever he might go. And all that time, the ordinary wonder of manhood crept upon me unawares. I shot up like an olive tree. My mind scanned like a sailor, the horizon of things. Aaron, I see that far off gaze in you in quiet times. It's as if he had climbed a mountain to be free and fresh and clear, a man's look, cold and bracing. And like you, I was forever hungry like a raven, felt hunger as a tingling in my palms, like an abyss that opens at your feet when you're lost in thought upon the bluffs. Now and then when I got good flesh to tear, I gnawed it wolf-like to the bone. My soul was emptier still, so still I followed him. His words spilled on me like a waterfall, spraying and splashing down the shiny rocks of a sheer cliff where the boys strip and laugh for the fine cold of it and flap their arms and dance like brainless children and scour off the sweat of work. I must have heard him speak a hundred times and loved him and recalled not one word, not one saying, let it soak into me like a royal dye, like blood what meat he lived on i could never tell unless the spirit like the wind unseen brought him the sweetness of the father's grace but he grew lean his collarbone and shoulders shone in the sun although his muscles were cords from his years of work in wood and stone and in his eyes there was a strength of love but the scribes set him round about with snares and the sick fidgeted to catch his tunic And the poor with their parching throats cried out for just a drop of hope. And my palms tingled. I dug my nails into them, set my jaw like flint, and said, he must be hungry too. Fasting from all the bread that makes men great. Fasting from many an innocent delight, working himself to emptiness, as flame devours a wisp of linen slick with oil. So I said, I will bring him food some day. that much I can do. Think of it, my boys, like bringing salt to the ocean. I sewed up a sack and slung it from my shoulder, stuffed it with figs in season, or a round of cheese thick as a millstone, raisins, dates, and apples, a branch of olives and a skin of wine, whatever I could lay my hands on, till one day two fishes, and five barley loaves. Yes, that was me, your broken down old man who rocks your brains to sleep with all this talking. Four or 5,000, who could count so many? Thick on the hill like blossoms on the broom tree, like pebbles on the beach. When Joshua fought in Ajalon, the sun forgot his course and stood still in the heavens, wonder struck. So it was with the crowds that traveled on, as if they left no footprints in the sand, as if the shadow on the sundial froze, as if they tottered, bandy-legged, to follow the voice of the good shepherd to a place of locusts and bare rock. The sun grew pale over the west, while with a tooth the air pinched to the naked skin. Give them to eat, he said to his disciples round about, but they all looked like simple-minded men, one to the other showing empty hands for all that they were mighty for the lord and that is how it would have ended that is how the night falls and the people leave unfed for he had turned and shut his eyes to let the wonder rest upon their will and they who had seen him raise the little girl from her cold bed of death who heard him say give her something to eat could think of nothing but disappointment these great men of god but one of them was still a boyish chap a bit craze-headed with a shock of hair, who passed the time with me once on the crown of tabor chucking stones over the brink and now and then while the disciples counseled of heavy affairs state and temple he lay in the sun and smiled at precious nothing his name was andrew and he up and said lord Here's a lad with five loaves and two fish, but what is that to feed so great a crowd? Then the Lord raised his head, opened his eyes. He made them sit like children on the hill. He blessed the fish, he blessed and broke the bread. Aaron and Simon, when I die, remember, it was the one good thing I did in life. Loving my wife that was to be, and loving our seven children, and the youngest boy, your father, And you children like two lambs butting each other with your woolly heads. It was all there that one day on the hill. I brought him two fish and five loaves of bread. Do that, my boys, and never mind the rest. His crumbs are fuller than a rich man's feast. One word from him wiser than Solomon. But keep in mind he was a boy like you. Then be boys just as he was. Now I'll rest. The sheep need water, Aaron. And your father wanted you to for something. I've forgotten. This nut of mine is crammed with stories yet. I'll tell them to you someday. That I will.
0: Fantastic. I mean, there's a leisure to poetry. I have so much I want to say and ask you about this poem and about about the, the, the craft of it. But there's a... That I mean, you requires a freedom to listen to be present to it, uh, that you know that passage in the gospel. Of course, the five loves. I mean, there's information there, but poetry is not a, is is about more than information. In some ways, I want to say that the the accidents are as important as the substance, or the substance is present through the accidents. Because the little words, the ways you the way you choose certain words, the way you pronounce them, which I want to get to in a second, uh, brings out elements of that story. Or of that man and what he reflects in that story, and that strikes me. That's what poetry—the the way you do it—has uh, the, the ability to bring out substance through the accidents, and the style of it is actually the the for the substance, you could say. So, like, why write? Why write in that way? Like, why? You know, couldn't you just write that stuff out and convey it in some sort of paragraph with you know full justified text and such? But instead, you have this luxurious moment of rest in the beauty of, of the spoken word.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, I, for sheer power, nothing, uh, nothing comes close, uh, for sheer power in language, nothing comes close, comes close to poetry well done. Um, if, uh, you think about this, this very short, mysterious poem by Robert Frost that, you know, people, I think most people are still familiar with stopping by woods on a snowy evening if frost had just said you know i was uh, riding back home the other night when it was snowing and it was really kind of pretty and i stopped for a bit beside the lake and i thought yeah it's the woods are pretty but then i went home We well, you know big deal right that doesn't mean anything but i mean if you'll just uh, pardon me with, with a few lines here whose woods these are i think i know this house is in the village though He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer um, to stop without a farmhouse near, between the woods and frozen lake, the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have promises to keep. And miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. I mean, to, to compare that with, uh yeah, I was riding home the other day in the woods, uh, and it was snowing, and it was really kind of mysterious and beautiful. But you know, uh, I, I mean, this is something that um we miss when we forget the imagination, right? A painting by Caravaggio, Caravaggio's painting of Doubting, Doubting Thomas, where Christ. Patiently takes the hand of Thomas and inserts the finger underneath his own skin in the side so that you can see that hidden figure from underneath in the bulge of the flesh. There is nothing um, that I know that more powerfully conveys that the resurrection of Christ was the resurrection in the flesh than that painting. You see that painting, you never forget it okay um that painting is worth 50 pages of of um uh of, of theology about the resurrection uh you, you know you, you you see it and then maybe you write your 50 pages of theology which where you're trying to describe what exactly this means but the artist has it uh maybe he doesn't maybe he doesn't have the words for it the painter doesn't have the words for it maybe the poet can't paint the painting um my gosh, I mean, uh, if we think that we're going to win the world over by rational argument, um, I think we're putting much too much stock in, in that tool. That's a rather blunt instrument most of the time. Um, so Professor and like I said, this is the nitroglycerin.
2: <laughs> a small question about, about language, just to kind of follow on with that thought. I think I often forget that language has a sonic quality. Like we we treat language as if it were just spoken conceptuality and forget that language has a kind of flesh, as it were. And, you know, as you're reading, you know, like in a certain kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a, uh, a a good student of poetry. I don't really know much about poetry, but uh, I, you know, like I notice the fact that you you'll string together consonants of a similar sort and you'll string together vowel sounds of a similar sort. And also... You know, I'm in the I'm in the habit, I think, of using a lot of language that's Latin based. But it's it's very evident when you use language that is more like Anglo-Saxon and kind of thwappy. Um, like I notice like p's more and k's more, and there's a kind of um, yeah, there, there's there's a kind of embodiedness to the language. What do you think it is about the embodiedness of language that communicates meaning after the manner that you've been describing?
1: Well, uh, the, the, the the sorts of word choices here, I think, are appropriate to Grandpa. Um, other in other monologues uh, a different kind of language is used right uh, um you've got to get the got to get the character straight um, but in general uh language um language is not just this matter of a sign that disappears once it conveys a meaning it's it's think of it th- th- think of um think of what it's like to say things in a dramatic context um, you've got the words and their meaning, but you've also got the words in their physicality. They have to be expressed. The body expresses them, not just the oral cavity, but uh, but the but your heart is involved, right? Uh, imagine doing Hamlet's first soliloquy, where he's enraged at what he sees at the court in Denmark. Um, to understand that piece of poetry. You have to put yourself in Hamlet's place. Put yourself in Hamlet's place, you're involving all kinds of passion. There's blood in that poetry, okay? Um, you, and you not only um, perform it in the body, you receive it also in the body. So you have bodily memories uh, uh, of your own voice, auditory memories of your voice, but also physical memories of what you're doing, uh, With both your voice and your hands, your body, your muscles, okay, Um, your whole person becomes part of the performance, Um, and uh, uh, this is why this is why the, the move to detach poetry from music was so deadly to poetry, because then it became only stuff that you would see on the page, and if you hear. If you hear a lot of poets read their poems, it's as if they're just reading uh, a billboard or something, you know. Or, the, or they give you the pseudo-profound voice, all in a monotone. It's supposed to be very meaningful, you know. Um, and uh, that's just more of the same old sludge. You know what? You know if you if you if one of the fascinating things that I, uh, uh, I discovered when I started to poke around in Hebrew a bit was that. Uh, well, Hebrew is a Hebrew is not one of our Indo-European languages. It works on different principles, okay? Um, Hebrew is extraordinarily terse. And uh, basically, it's got very few of those little words that link w- one word to another, very few conjunctions, very few prepositions, okay? It's like a block of meaning next to another block of meaning, okay? Um, and uh, that... That sort of power, that starkness really makes words of uh, the Old Testament come out. And you can hear it behind the words of Jesus, whose Hebraic language is being translated into Greek. Okay. But Jesus composed poems. The Beatitudes are expressed poetically. So is the Our Father. These are poems. They're very powerful poems. Okay. Um, the first time I, I got it was when I was reading Genesis one in Hebrew. And, uh, there's this, this world changing sentence. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I mean, that, that's a sentence that changed the world. Okay. In Hebrew, because Hebrew is so compact, uh, you have, and god said elohim that's and god said now for let there be light and there was light that's eight words in english it's only two in hebrew and god said that, well i, I, I uh is four okay four and god said he or or he or he H-y is a is a form of the verb to be And it echoes the unutterable name of God. Or means light. He or. We he or. Um, And then because of a peculiarity in Hebrew, the forms of the verb are identical before and after the little conjunction, which isn't even a word. It's stuck on the front end of the next word. He or. We he or. And it's as if God said light and light.
0: Right. Yeah, I remember. I remember first learning Hebrew and seminary before, and the the language, the different character of that language, uh, the, that you had to hear it. It was a, it was clearly a, a, a spoken language instead of a written language in a sense, and you got that so clearly as, as you pronounce those words. That's powerful, Professor Asson. Um, we're running out of time, but I want but I want to ask a final question and maybe tips you could say. Um, so. Our listeners, I hope at this point are thinking, I need yeah poetry. I need to do poetry. I mean, I need to play the violin. I need to do this kind of thing. And playing the violin <laughs> oh, no, is terrifying ta- t- <laughs> Right, playing the violin seems terrifying. But I think like reading poetry seems terrifying too to a lot of people because I don't. There's something like I think when you pick up poetry and you start to read it, you don't know. You know you're supposed to be reading it differently or doing something, and you feel like embar- Maybe you're embarrassed. You don't know. You're supposed to get something profound out of it. It's supposed to be this kind of. There's all okay, this stuff. I'm so how how can our a- listeners
1: do this? Okay. There is a there were uh, I, I'm going to get the title wrong, but I don't have the author wrong because I mess this up all the time. I think he wrote two books on this. He he was actually a poet himself and a TV personality and a professor of Harvard. His name was Louis Untermeyer. Okay, uh, that's U N T E R Meyer is M E Y E R. So Louis Untermeyer, Louis Untermeyer, right? Um, and he uh he was all about bringing poetry back to ordinary people, especially in in the schools. And so he he wrote a couple of books that are his way of teaching ordinary people how great it is to have these poems and how to read them, you know, how they work. Um, One of them, I think, is called Doorways to Poetry. And the other has a similar name like Paths to Poetry okay um, but uh, uh, they're terrific books. I have one of them here someplace but I, I can't remember the exact title but if, if you do a search for Lewis Untermeyer, uh, one or both of them going to show up and that's that's terrific Now a little bit more formal and more formidable the uh, Cleanth Brooks and Robert Penn Warren um, mm-hmm. for high school students and college students uh, put together Um, this massive introduction to literature where you can get the portion of it that's devoted to poetry uh, separately, right? Uh, Introduction to poetry. Um, And it's a very, very fine book. It's a little bit more of a textbook. Untermeyer's book is more informal uh, and chatty. There's actually a really beautiful anecdote at the beginning of Untermeyer's book, and I share this because I want, I want people to understand how, how what poetry could mean in human life, right? So Undermeyer is, at the beginning of the book, he's trying to tell um, young men, especially, listen, poetry is not for sissies, all right? Um, don't worry that it's effeminate because it's not. And let me tell you a story. Uh, certain high school class, ha- um, uh, every student in the class had to recite um, a poem, and somebody else in the class had to evaluate the quality of the recitation. And um, so one kid got up and recited Thomas Gray's Elegy on um, uh, a prospect of Eton College. So uh, in the poem, Gray is looking at schoolboys at Eton as they're out on the playing fields. And he's thinking, you know, I used to be there. And he's also thinking, these kids are going to grow up and they're playing now, but it's not always gonna be this way. And a lot of them are gonna know great sorrow, a lot of them are gonna die, you know? Um, that's the poem that ends no more, where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise, right? So the kid recites this, and then the teacher uh, chooses as uh, uh, the person to evaluate the recitation, chooses this big linebacker for the football team. And the linebacker replies in this way, "Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, ma'am. I cannot comment on this. Uh, he, He did very well. It is my favorite poem in the world and I cannot comment on it. Right, I mean, there's this young guy, a linebacker, moved to the depths of his soul by a poet, by a poet and his poem written 200 years before. Yeah, now that that's that's ordinary in human existence. What we have is not ordinary. We have we're the bizarre ones. That's
0: yes, history. Ideally, if uh, if enough people have listened to this episode, um, this will seem like the the unordinary, the uh, the the bizarre. Of human civilization, but we'll see. Um, Professor, it's been a joy, an absolute joy to talk to you. you. I'm going to send it over to Father Gregory Pine for. The final announcement stuff, because I don't know what goes on here, really. I just read. <laughs> but I, one final recommendation. Um, so the the, the books uh, by Untermeyer, uh, I'm sure they're great. But the first, again, 46 pages of The Hundredfold is a, a, ma- a little master class on uh, jumping you right in, a very brief introduction, you could call it, uh, to poetry before you hit hit the thing. So that is highly recommended as well, of course. So I'll turn it over to Father Gregor, but uh, Professor Esselin thank you so much.
1: Thank you, guys.
2: Yeah. And I echo those. Thanks. And just um, uh, a couple final words for our listeners. Thanks so much for listening and uh, for supporting the podcast. Uh, You can help get this episode out to friends, family, foes, should you choose, uh, just by liking it and sharing it, writing reviews. Uh, We'd be glad to have that. Um, Thanks also for your financial contributions. Uh, They go a long way towards helping us to pay Katie Parker, who edits all the audio and video and does all the promotion, for which we are very much grateful, very much indebted. Um, we also have each, it seems like each week we say there are like a couple more spots on the retreat that we're hosting in July. We're not, um, like gaslighting you into thinking that this is, uh, actually not a full retreat and that I don't actually know if that would constitute gaslighting. I probably should drill down on the signification of words before I just use them. Um, but (laughs) We, we actually keep getting uh, like a little booster crop from the from the retreat center. So at this point, I think we've actually maxed out the retreat center because of the interest in the retreat. So we're able to have 94 people in attendance. Again, that's for folks. Folks, yeah, that's for people. Human beings, homo sapiens between the ages of 21 and 33. It's uh, July 23rd through 25th, Huntington, New York. Um, and it'll be, you know, a retreat with your typical retreat-like things. Uh, so that's all for me. And I'm sending it back Father Bonaventure because the host who begins ought to be the host who ends.
0: Oh, fantastic! Well, thank you for listening, and uh, Professor Esslon, again, thank you, and uh, Godspeed, blessings to your family this summer, and um, I'm sure your students are looking forward to having you back at at Monlin College, but of course, Magdalene Magdalene College, College. But of I want you Liberal to give Arts the the, New the New Check you want to say one okay. That's so. Ma- what is it again?
1: Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts in Warner, New Hampshire, and uh, we have a unique in the country four year course in the humanities and the. Will they read art. poetry? Oh. <laughs>
0: That's it. Forget just go right to the source. Well, thank Professor Huston, thank you so much, and God bless, and God bless to our listeners as well.
1: Thanks for listening to God's Plaining, a work of the Dominican friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app, and visit us at
0: godsplaining.org.